Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. We are going to dive in now and start talking about more specific diagnoses. I'm going to lead things off with juvenile idiopathic arthritis. JIA encompasses all forms of arthritis that begin before the age of 16, persist for more than six weeks, and are of an unknown cause. It is essentially a diagnosis of exclusion. There are no definitive laboratory tests, and it often takes time for the disease presentation to fully evolve into a diagnosis. The main types of JIA are systemic JIA, oligoarthritis, polyarthritis, enticitis, related arthritis, and psoriatic arthritis. They are defined by signs and symptoms present in the first six months of the disease. It is important to know the presenting features of each of these and how they differ from each other. Systemic JIA's presenting factor is a fever spike of 102 or higher, one to two times per day for over two weeks. In between spikes, you will see a rapid return to normal. The fever is accompanied by a typical evanescent rash, usually on the trunk or limbs. There are also systemic signs like pleuritis, pericarditis, myocarditis, etc. Systemic disease may precede arthritis by several months or years. Oligoarthritis has an onset usually in girls between the ages of 2 and 4 years old. The hallmarks for oligoarthritis are low-grade inflammation in four or fewer joints, most often the knee, ankles, or elbows. The joints may be swollen, sometimes warm, but not always painful. Polyarticular JIA is further divided into RF positive or RF negative. It is defined by arthritis in five or more joints. Onset is often insidious and progressive. The arthritis is usually symmetrical and may affect both large and small joints. Joints are swollen and warm, but rarely red. You may see a low-grade fever. RF positive is very similar to adult rheumatoid arthritis with the rheumatoid nodules. These are less common with the RF negative group, and usually in RF negative, fewer joints are affected. So remember, polyarticular JIA, five or more joints. Oligoarthritis is four or fewer joints. It's definitely important to be familiar with the different types of JIA, especially if you get a question with a case presentation and you are asked to identify what you think the diagnosis may be and how you would treat it. JIA is an autoimmune inflammatory disorder activated by an external trigger in a genetically predisposed host. 
Sometimes a viral or bacterial infection can precede diseased onset. Sometimes physical trauma may be associated with onset. Pharmacological management is important. The goals are to induce remission of the disease and or control the arthritis. We really need to manage the extra articular manifestations, preventing joint erosions. NSAIDs are the most widely used as the first line of therapy. Methotrexate is the most common disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug, so that's a DMARD. Biologic medication that targets a cytokine responsible for many of the effects of inflammation is another option. Last, systemic steroids are an option, usually reserved for kids who do not respond to other therapies. Steroids are great at masking inflammation, but they do not alter the course of the disease, and they have a lot of nasty side effects. Chronic inflammation does nothing good for a joint. Signs of inflammation include swelling, end-range pain, stiffness, and loss of full range of motion. In JIA, morning stiffness is a common complaint. Campbell has a great chart outlining the common restrictions and adaptations seen in the joints primarily affected by JIA. For example, the knee is the most common joint affected early in all JIA types, and you'll often see a rapid development of a knee flexion contracture. I know I say this a lot, but it's a good flashcard material because really it's just facts and you have to know and the chart lays it out well. You will quickly be able to create yourself some on-the-go study content from this chart. There was also a Quizlet that someone made from a previous year that had a great JIA study guide. You can make the Quizlet into a test or a matching game to make it more challenging or fun. Arthritis doesn't just affect the joints, but it can also affect the muscle structure and function. In the acute phase, you will see spasm and hypertonus, usually related to guarding of the joint. In the chronic stage, you will see weakness and atrophy, especially near the affected joint. You may also see growth and postural changes, as well as fitness changes. Fitness changes are likely due to the overall inactivity in this population. There are a few outcome measures specific to JIA. The good news is they have juvenile arthritis in the title, so at least that gives you some information just in the title alone. These are relatively new outcome measures. Of course, pain assessment is huge in this population, so be familiar with the outcome measures related to pain. Pain outcome measures are very much related to the age of the child. In younger children, you'll use the Wong-Baker Faces Scale or the Oucher. Children over the age of seven are usually ready for a numeric rating scale or a visual analog scale. It is important to examine the joint and muscle. This examination will vary depending on the stage of the disease. Is it an acute, subacute, or chronic phase? The book continues to outline outcome measures for activity level and participation level assessments. Get to work on your outcome measures chart. If you don't want to reinvent the wheel, PCS Advantage has a great outcome measure chart. So what is the role of the PT in JIA? Well, the PT will develop a prioritized problem list and an intervention plan to reduce functional limitations and to prevent or minimize secondary impairments. This is essentially the foundation of any diagnosis that you may see. More specific to arthritis, one of the most important things will be to work with the parents and the child to develop a joint health and self-management program. This will outline balance, rest, and exercise. It will provide guidelines for choosing extracurricular activities, and it will help ensure full participation in school activities. So what are our interventions related to JIA? Well, the same overall goals we have in most conditions, restore and optimize activity, participation, and physical health. 
JIA does have some specific considerations, though, because your treatment approach will differ depending on what stage of the disease you're working with. In the acute phase, you are focused on maintaining and preserving joint function. In subacute and chronic phases, you are working on restoration and compensation of function and activities. Physical activity and exercise are essential, and a warm pool environment can be an awesome medium to have therapy in an acute flare. Joint health can be managed with cold exercise and occasional splinting, no superficial or deep heat, ultrasound, or shortwave diathermy. Balanced rest and exercise are the foundation of treatment. Active range of motion is preferred. During acute flares, isometric exercises can be used for strengthening, and you can add in dynamic exercise once the joint inflammation has subsided. A large focus of JIA is the overall hypoactivity seen in this population. It is important to encourage children to participate in regular physical activity. Research has shown no adverse effects of regular sport activity on joint scores in children with JIA. The long-term effects of physical inactivity are not helpful in managing JIA. Chapter 8 dives into spinal conditions. I am not going to go over the development of the spine because of the intricate detail, but that is something we will suggest you go over on your own. The PCS Advantage study guides have a nice, concise chart on spinal development. We are going to focus on the diagnoses listed in the chapter, with the first being scoliosis. It is recommended that scoliosis screening is done twice on females at ages 10 and 12, and males once around age 13 or 14. Scoliosis is referred to as a three-dimensional curvature of the spine. To be considered scoliosis, the curvature in the coronal plane must be greater than 10 degrees. The curve may also be idiopathic, neuromuscular, or congenital. The Cobb angle is the unit of measure for scoliosis. Right-sided curves are more common. Left-sided curves warrant further evaluation. I thought MedBridge had some really great scoliosis content. There was a four-part series on idiopathic scoliosis. Some might be a little more involved than you realistically need for the test, but the first two basic foundational modules help me better understand the biomechanics related to scoliosis and the curve progression. I think I watched them twice. Idiopathic scoliosis is the most common form of scoliosis. There are three things to think about with idiopathic scoliosis. The child's age, risk or sign, and curve magnitude. This helps to predict the ability for the curve to progress. The younger the child and the lower the risk or sign, the greater risk of progression. The larger the curve at initial presentation, the more likely the curve will be to progress. The risk or sign is the skeletal maturity of the pelvis. Zero is not skeletally mature and five is fully fused. There are some good images in the textbook for this. The risk or sign came up a lot throughout the orthopedic content, so definitely a good scale to be familiar with. The three types are infantile, juvenile, and adolescent. In infantile, a left-sided curve is more common. It is more common in males than females, and the curves tend to spontaneously resolve. Juvenile scoliosis has a high rate of progression. Right-sided curves are more common, and they have a high rate of progression and result in severe deformity if not treated appropriately. Adolescent scoliosis is very common, about 80% of all cases of idiopathic scoliosis. For curves less than 25 degrees, examination every four to six months is recommended. 
orthotic management is recommended between 25 and 45 degrees of a Cobb angle. There are many different types of scoliosis braces, so we suggest taking the time to look at pictures of them and their description. Some are still used today and others are not. Surgery is recommended when there is a 45 degree curve in a skeletally immature individual or greater than 40 degrees with a progressive curve. A 50 degree or greater curve at skeletal maturity is a strong predictor for decreased pulmonary function. An individual with a curve greater than 100 degrees may show decreased vital capacity to below 70 to 80% of normal value. I think it's really important to know what treatments are recommended at each of the curve severity levels. Congenital scoliosis is caused by anomalous vertebral development in utero. Most curves are stable and don't progress. Neuromuscular scoliosis is often associated with systemic or chronic diseases and seen in an earlier age. It often grows more rapidly and is more debilitating. Clinical observation, orthotic management, custom seating, and radiographic examination are key interventions. The goal is not to avoid surgery like idiopathic, but rather delay surgery to later years. For kyphosis, a normal curve is 20 to 40 degrees. Congenital kyphosis is the most common cause of spinal cord compression. Surgery is recommended to prevent further deformity. Schuerman's disease is a form of rigid kyphosis. Clinical findings include forward head posture, increased thoracic kyphosis with compensatory increased lumbar lordosis, and tight pecs and hamstrings. Interventions include exercises, orthotic management, and surgery if necessary. Postural round back is flexible, not rigid. I also think MedBridge had some really good content on kyphosis as well. I think the same person who did the scoliosis content also did a kyphosis module as well, which again, I thought did a really good job of walking you through kind of the biomechanics with some good pictures and graphics that really just helped you better understand the wedging that you see with the kyphosis. I agree, Sheila. I thought those videos were really helpful. For the lumbar spine, an excessive lordotic curve may develop to compensate for an increased thoracic kyphosis or due to a congenital issue. Spondylolysis is a defect of the pars interarticularis. Spondylolithesis is a forward translation of one vertebrae on another. It often occurs on L5 over S1. You may see a poor posture presentation. Clinical symptoms for a spondylolithesis include low back pain relieved by rest, sciatic type pain, local tenderness, hamstring spasm or tightness, and torso shortening in severe cases. Interventions include observation, bracing, exercise, and surgery when indicated. Indications for surgery include greater than 50% slippage, persistent pain despite conservative measures, marked instability, gait deviations, neurological deficit or radiculopathy, and hamstring contracture. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. 
We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.